Hello, and welcome to A New Legacy, where we have conversations about new visions for justice and healing in this era of mass incarceration. I'm Jess Nickel, and I'm here with my sister, Annie. And today we're sharing the second half of our conversation with Jay Jordan, CEO of Alliance for Safety and Justice. As we mentioned in part one, this was such a rich and wide-ranging conversation that we decided to divide this into two episodes to ensure that we were able to include everything Jay had to say. Yeah, so part one of this conversation, which is already published on our website, includes his personal story and the context for his political work. And in this second episode, we go into more detail about the problematic approaches of how our justice system addresses crime and how we might more effectively disrupt cycles of violence and harm. Right. Jay talks about the reactive system that we have, which is very different from a preventative one. Police respond to crime after it happens, but there really isn't nearly enough focus put on preventing that crime from happening in the first place. So the system we currently have is one of retribution and punishment rather than a system of care, as Jay says. Yeah, and many people know that our current criminal legal system is doing a lot of harm to the most marginalized people in our country. But it's important that we learn from people who have firsthand experiences with what the problems are or what other options have been created, or what to actually do about it right now. And Jay talks about all of these challenges, as well as things that are actually working now in service of public safety. I love what he shares in this episode about violence interrupters, who go out and support people who are in the streets, mediating conflict and literally removing guns from people's hands. Yeah, and that will actually be a big theme of some episodes that we have coming up. So stay tuned for that. So I am going to read a quick version of Jay's bio. Jay Jordan has worked at the intersection of social justice and politics throughout his career. He serves as Alliance for Safety and Justice's CEO, overseeing all of ASJ's state-based teams and reform advocacy efforts, as well as the Time Done National Director. Jay co-founded the organization's Time Done campaign to organize people living with past conviction records to eliminate the barriers to opportunity that block them from success. He previously served as executive director of ASJ's flagship state-based program, Californians for Safety and Justice. If you'd like to learn more about Jay and the incredible work he's done, please visit our website at anewlegacy.com to read his full bio and learn about the various projects and campaigns he's worked on. And now we will dive into part two of our amazing conversation with Jay Jordan. Right now, across the country, homicides are up, domestic violence is up. But these things were already beginning to boil because prior to COVID, there was a mental health crisis, there was a drug addiction crisis in America, there was a homelessness crisis in America. When you have mental illness and drug addiction in a household, there's going to be some violence in that household. When you have poverty mixed with mental illness, drug addiction on the streets, you're going to get homicides. When you look at the system's role in this, they wait for homicides to happen. And then they're like, oh, listen to police. Listen to detectives. Ambulances don't come until something happens. Why would a police show up at your house if nothing happened? Let's just put that on the shelf. The system has nothing to do with preventing homicides at all. The system has nothing to do with preventing DVs at all. It only responds to it after it happens. Now, how do you prevent it from happening? 
this is what most people are trying to figure out that are in the field. It's not like we don't want to abolish the system or get rid of cops or like, no, it's like, how do we prevent this stuff from happening? There is a community-based public safety infrastructure that has existed in communities, but it hasn't been funded in a way that it should be funded. When you look at frontline workers, our frontline interventionists, these are violence interrupters. These are sometimes clergy. These are coaches. These are fathers. Most of them are men. Some of them are women. These are uncles that are in the streets from these communities. They are literally taking guns out of young men's hands. I was down in Albuquerque on my way here with Chief Albino, and he runs a shop called La Plazita. And he was telling me about this young woman who had a gun in her backpack, and he literally was like, give me the gun now. Put it on my desk now. You do not need a gun. You are here to do cultural organizing. Give me the gun now. And he got her to give him the gun. Like, police don't do that. Probation doesn't do that. DAs don't do that. Frontline gang interventionists, assertive outreach workers that are in the community and saying, hey, what do you need? Talk to me. Let me tell you about the way the world works. These systems of care, victims advocates, not necessarily the ones in the DA's office, but folks that do victim outreach and trauma recovery centers. Give them the tools and resources they need to be successful in that system. The criminal justice system is not a system of care. It's a system of retribution and punishment. We need a complementary system of care that is in community, that is funded by public dollars, that prevents crime from happening. If you look at what Akila Sharil have been able to do in Newark, right? Gun violence reduced by 40%. That is more than 100 people that still have their life. When you look at what's happening in Los Angeles and gun violence in Los Angeles, right? Like you have violence interventionists out there putting their life on the line saying, don't shoot. You know, you have clergy in Oakland doing night walks in Stockton doing night walks, walking down these dangerous neighborhoods saying, hey, man, I want to pray for you, young brother. You look like you physically go do some crazy stuff. That is essentially what is needed because the cops, they're not there for that. This is the essential piece this piece, I feel so inspired. It's like these are heroes that are going out at night on the streets and talking to people and taking their guns and intervening in what could be deadly violence. These are such heroes. Yeah, they are. They are. And there's dozens of them. There's hundreds of them across the country, dozens of them in California. I mean, break it down into four buckets. You have gang interventionists, you have assertive outreach workers, you have victims advocates, and you have trauma recovery centers. And then you have youth programs, mentorship programs, and the big one that no one really talks about is youth sports. There's a component of youth sports that no one really talks about, which is the mentorship. A lot of kids of color, their lives are saved because they go into youth sports. And so this huge apparatus of ensuring that this subset of society from the ages of like 14 to 26, that's the sweet spot right there. That's the Goldilocks song. 14 to 26, men of color and white men living in poverty have been through some traumatic experience, you know, single parent household, grades are slipping. We know who's susceptible to, you know, commit violence and crime. Like we know that, right? And so why not invest money into ensuring that they are okay? There's an infrastructure that exists in every single community like this that is not funded with public dollars. And that, for me, is why we advocate at CSJ, ASJ, to get people who shouldn't be in prison and jails out of prisons and jails. Like, if you have a drug addiction problem, why are you in jail? 
If you have a mental illness problem, why are you in jail? If you stole a bike because you didn't have money to buy a bike, why? give this guy a job. Don't put him in jail. You're spending $70,000 to spend $15 for a bike. You know what I mean? Get those folks out. Put them in a system of care to streamline them to success. Take the money we save, which is going to be billions, and pump it into a community-based public safety system to prevent crime from happening, lower the crime rate, and lower the amount of money we have to spend on punishing people. It is a very simple concept. The hard part about it is this. It takes a paradigm shift. Like, how do you tell an entire system that have been doing something one way for so long, and they're called heroes for doing that one thing, that some of the stuff that they're doing is wrong, and maybe a little bit racist? What y'all are doing is so important because that story needs to be told. We're not saying they're the enemy. We're not saying the men and women who put on uniforms and robes and go into these courthouses and these police cars and to these jails and prisons are bad people. No, they are in a system of care for themselves, not for the community. They're in a system of punishment. They're upholding that system of punishment. We need to ensure like those men and women who want to lace up and go protect the community, put them in a system of care in their community that they live in So they can prevent crime from happening instead of putting them in a system of punishment and upholding that system of punishment. It's backwards. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like we're in this incredibly crucial moment where people who are less impacted by incarceration are really beginning to question and reevaluate a lot of the conventional thinking around the criminal justice system. One of the main things a lot of people assume is that harsh mandatory sentencing laws are what victims want. And obviously that's not true for us and for many crime survivors. And you've spoken to this a bit already, but you know, what do we need to do as individuals to challenge our thinking around criminal justice and incarceration in this country? Well, folks just need to like take a very logical view. Logic and reasoning in this is super important and parallels as well. And everyone needs to do this. Let's do parallels first. Look at every other government system and how that government system is set up or how that system of care is set up. A lot of people put the criminal justice system next to the public health system because that's like the closest you get is where people have something done with them and then the public steps in to help them. Healthcare, whatever. You put the system up to any other system, if our healthcare system failed 60 to 70% of the time, would we be talking about universal healthcare system? No. We'll be like, we don't want the government system in my household because y'all are failing 60 (laughs) or 70% of the time. I don't want that. Like I said, what do people want? If you had one thing that system did, one thing the system did, right? What would that one thing be? And most people will say to not have any crime. You don't get to no crime by waiting for crime to happen. There's this parable that puts it best. It's like, hey, hey, you're on a river and you see a baby floating in the river. You take the baby out the river and you take care of it. And you see another baby floating up the river and you take the baby and take care of it. At some point, you have to go upstream and see who's putting these babies in the river. And that's the justice system. Now, the people are like, hey, listen, we're tired of just taking these babies out the river. We need to go upstream and figure out what's going on. If we know that Jay Jordan, who's 15, his grades are slipping and he's running away from home two and three days at a time, he's highly susceptible to be in trouble with the justice system just for the sheer fact that he's out in the streets. If we know that, what does the system of care for that? We need to, as individuals, begin to look at this system through very clear logic and reasoning and parallels and then challenge 
the status quo. Instead of me picking up the phone and calling the police, let me see if I can call my local pastor or some mentorship. A lot of times we think that we have to like build up these huge campaigns. And it's like, no, as individuals, just have an analysis and then interact with the world through that analysis. If a million people in America did that, where it was like, hey, this system is not right. We need a system where we prevent crime from happening. Let's like stop locking people with mental illness up and people in poverty up and interact with the world that way. Your conversation at your church with your family members is going to be different and do it through a lens of love and grace. Horrible and evil things have happened to people, good people, undeserving people. And instead of singling out and putting things into context and having an analysis of how that happened, we put these blanket laws out there and these laws end up harming communities of color because communities of color are the ones where the most police are at. Right. And that is the problem with the criminal justice system and incarceration first laws is we don't put things into context when something very, very bad happens. We say we just need to lock everybody up. It's like, no, it's not the case, man. People need systems of care give ourselves grace and do it through love, but have an analysis, interact with the world through that lens and put these things in the context with parallels and logic and reasoning. And I think if we all do that, it makes people like me's job a whole lot easier to go into a state house and say, listen, when I say safety, I'm saying the same thing as Annie and Jess. And they may say it through the lens of, hey, we're spending too much money on a system that doesn't keep us safe. I may say safety because hey, man, I can't get a job after I get out. We all are saying the same thing, and the system has to listen to us. This piece about it's a paradigm shift, right? We could talk about redistributing dollars, but what's going to get us to redistribute those dollars? It is an internal paradigm shift. Something has to happen such that people want to redistribute those dollars, such that the programming does get the support that it needs. That's a pretty important step. A lot of it is culture, too, right? Our culture contributes to our politics. And look at how many crime shows right. are out there. It used to be just law and order. Dun, 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 dun. Now it's like law and order SVU, law and order Los Angeles, NCIS, and SWAT, and FBI. And it's like these bad guys are out here trying to, you know, and it's like, wait a minute. How much of America is actually bad? A lot of violent crime happens when they're in the relationship. A lot of random crime happens because it's quality of life. It's quality of life. Everything that I've done was because I didn't have. I don't know any well-meaning person that's making over $100,000 a year that's out there stealing bikes, breaking into houses. It just doesn't happen. I know some rich people that are doing crimes, you know what I mean? But that's not the crime that gets laws passed and sweeps up entire communities. If we want to address it, let's address the underlying causes of crime. And if we were to change the culture, we had TV shows and more documentaries about the underlying causes of criminality. And we treated crime like it was a disease, like it was a symptom and not the cause. If we applied the same strategies to preventative medicine and to targeted treatment, if we applied that to crime, what's more deadly than poverty, unemployment, lack of education, drug abuse, and mental illness? That's the most deadliest thing you can have. I would want to go into a society where that was prevalent because I know crime is going to happen. I'm not going to catch a disease. I'm going to catch a bullet. We need to change culture. We need to stop having a culture of punishment and glorifying this whole people are bad narrative and people are just criminals. Instead of saying, hey, these folks went through some stuff. 
Now get this. 100% of women who find themselves in prison in California were a victim ever before they were incarcerated. That tells it all, right? We are not addressing the underlying causes. Communities were saying we need an alternative approach to public safety. That's what they were saying, defund the police, not to just defund them all and abolish them. They were saying we need money to prevent crime from happening. It is my sincerest desire that we can have this public discussion again, like we had last year, saying what are the alternative strategies to policing? If we can have that same public dialogue and say, this is the alternative strategy, cops don't prevent crime. These are the people who prevent crime, these coaches, these violence interrupters, like that, I believe when we have these inflection points is when good people need to stand up and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And I imagine that when this happens, there's going to be tremendous room and space for folks like y'all to be like, hey, actually, no, that doesn't make any sense. We actually need to do something better. I'm extremely hopeful. I'll tell you why I'm extremely hopeful. Because for the first time, I actually felt that people are listening. Everybody. There was something that happened to us as a country with George Floyd. There was something that happened there that we all were like, this is wrong. I believe it's up to good-minded folks with an analysis to stand in and say, hey, this is what we can build. Shared safety strategies that actually make sense. We have a president in there that understands. It is my true, deepest desire that we begin to look at this complementary infrastructure that's community-based, that exists, and that has literally operated with little to no funding in communities around this country. And I feel like if we shift dollars to that infrastructure, we are going to begin to see the end of mass incarceration as we know it. Because people are going to say, hey, listen, the stories that come from that, calling people heroes, when you begin to raise those folks up, and then law enforcement starts to say, yeah, we need them, get this, gang interventionists don't operate outside the purview of law enforcement, they talk to law enforcement. Let us do our job. We're trying to prevent you from having to do your job. And that's the beauty of it. What's more American than that, right? Like people who may be on two different sides of the fence coming together to say, we all want safety. You do your job and hopefully I ain't got to come and arrest anybody. And that for me is beautiful. I'm going to wait for that moment because we're ready. When that conversation starts coming up again, we're ready to take part in that. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. I'm an organizer, so we're going to make it happen. Yeah, it's so great, Jay, talking with you. We have all of these questions, and I don't even know if we asked most of them because you just hit them. It's awesome to get to hear your perspectives and to get to learn from you. I feel incredibly inspired here talking with you. And we have this final set of questions This will be kind of like an interesting final question for you, Jay. It's a little bit of a tangent from what we've been discussing, but I'm personally really curious about the connection between advocacy and creativity. I've noticed that so many activists are incredibly creative people, and it makes sense that you would have to be a really creative and innovative mind to be a leader in this world and be upending these rigid policies that have been in place for decades. And so I was just curious about you. I was curious if you have other means of creative expression, and if so, what are they? And do they feel like it's fueled by the work that you do? I'm actually studying that. Oh, my God. I'm studying the brain science of creativity through the lens of oppression. So I stay up at night, two, three in the morning sometimes when the kiddos are asleep and the wife is laying down. And that's my creative time. Something about just the stillness 
and it reminds me of creativity as a means of escape is how we're able to remain hopeful. The world is burning down around you. Rome is burning. And if you feed into the flames, you would never be able to see, okay, when this burns, we're going to be able to use the ashes to build a mosaic of history. Starting from prison, I used to write movie scripts. I wrote plays. And then I began to try to reimagine systems. Goes back to what Maya Angelou said, right? The question can't exist unless the answer is out there somewhere in the universe. And that's, you know, the moral of why Cage Bird sings. You have to be creative in times of despair. Think about the mother who comforts her child when their stomach are growling at night and they don't have any money. They get creative. Oh, let's play a game. And so, like, creativity as a means of escape is why advocates are so creative. I mean, look at hip-hop, country music, turning sorrow and pain <laughs> into creativity. I mean, look at rap. Rap is all about the experience of poverty. I mean, Tupac, his song changes. I see no changes. Okay. I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being broke, even worse than black. Stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch, right? It's being creative about telling the story of poverty. And this is deep with particularly black people. We were thrown scraps. We had to be creative. We were in bondage. When I think about living through Jim Crow, you know, my dad's stories about having to cross the street because a white woman was walking on the sidewalk. His parents telling him, let's play a game. Let's cross the street. Creativity as a means of escape your current conditions because your conditions are so abhorrent and so harmful and so painful that you have to allow your brain to do what it needs to do. And I believe that's, that was a gift from our creator to give us a brain that imagines and can be creative to take us away because some of this stuff is so painful, yeah. deeply, deeply, deeply hurtful that all we can do is imagine a different place. And that's what reimagining justice is about. It's not about wanting to tear things down. It's about knowing that we have been harmed so much in this country. All we can do is just imagine and when you imagine something, like you, you, you can turn those things into concrete next steps. Who would have thought that Jay Jordan right here would be in Oklahoma with my parents? My dad owns 40 acres in the same city where he went to segregated schools. Now he owns land, his 40 acres and cows. I'm talking to Annie and Jess Nickel, right, about, you know, like transforming a system that told me when I was in second grade that I was a criminal. I feel so moved by that. And it does feel like the answer in so many ways. Like we have to be brave enough to imagine something different than what we've always assumed would be true or taken for granted. And I just feel so grateful to you, Jay, for talking with us today. This conversation has been a gift and I feel like changed by it. And I feel really excited to follow your lead. Yeah, and it seems like the change is happening. Here you are in Oklahoma at your dad's farm talking to us. Yes, there's a lot to change still, but it is happening. You're hopeful. We're hopeful. People have attention on this. It's happening. It's inevitable. And I think that's one of the like the biggest takeaways or impressions that I'm left with in being with you, Jade. And I feel so moved. I mean, after talking with you, I feel the goodness of the inevitability of the change that's already happening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and listening to Jay Jordan speak to these important issues. We hope you were as moved and inspired by his words as we were. 
If you would like to learn more, donate, or support the work he's been a part of, please go to our website, anewlegacy.com. 